This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. I'm Dr. Clarence Schuler. I was just with Dr. Karen on the Voice of Leadership, and we talked about racial unity. So a couple of things you might want to know about. And one is, why is racial reconciliation not the best term to use? How can diversity be profitable? And then what's really important about our future in regards to diversity, the brown of America, how it impacts you as an individual, and how it may impact your company? Make sure you listen to the voice of leadership with Dr. Karen to get the answers. Over the past several years, racial unrest, particularly in the United States, has escalated and especially as punctuated by use of excessive force incidents by police officers against Black citizens. In these crises, corporations and executive business leaders struggle to identify how to best respond as concerned corporate citizens. Today, my special guest to the show is racial unity expert, Dr. Clarence Schuler. And I want to let you know that Dr. Clarence Schuler is not only a racial unity expert, he's also a marriage expert. And if you did not hear our previous show, Go back and listen to the previous show also about executive marriages. So Dr. Clarence Schuler is the president and CEO of Building Lasting Relationships, also known as BLR. He is an author, marriage counselor, speaker, and life and relationship coach. As a diversity consultant, he has assisted numerous clients through his diversity seminars and or hiring people of color and women in decision-making positions, including the War College of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army's European-based Equal Opportunity Advisors, Evangelical Free Church of America, Moody Bible Institute, Navigators, Association of Christian Schools International, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Athletes in Action, Crowell and Orchard Foundations, and Mississippi Valley State University and Historically Black College. He's authored 10 books, including Winning the Race to Unity, published by Moody, used by colleges and graduate schools as a textbook It inspired Wheaton College's first ever Civil Rights Movement Conference. His newest book is Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions Brave Young Men Make, co-authored with Dr. Gary Chapman, the New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Chapman and Dr. Shuler frequently speak together at events. Also for over 35 years, Clarence and his wife, Brenda, have conducted marriage, discipleship, men's, women's, and single seminars internationally. He was a marriage expert for Oprah's Love Goals reality show in 2020. 
Dr. Schuler has been featured in Essence Magazine, Discipleship Journal, Black Enterprise, and other magazines as well as radio, including Dr. Chapman's Building Relationships. He's on the board of Fatherhood Co-Mission with Stephen Kendricks of the Kendrick Brothers Filmmakers. Dr. Schuler and his wife, Brenda, are veterans of the pastorate, a variety of nonprofits, and corporate consulting. They reside in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and are the parents of three adult daughters. Known as the love doctor, principally for his work in strengthening marriages, today we will discover more about what's love got to do with it on the subject of racial unity. Dr. Shula, welcome back to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Rarely do I have a guest who's an expert in two distinct areas of expertise. So thank you for joining me again. Well, Dr. Karen, thanks so much for having me. I, I love being with you. Wonderful. Love having you here as well. So we're just going to jump right in. So first, let me ask you, what do you think, Dr. Clarence, is behind the racial unrest in the United States? What mechanisms keep the racial schisms going and what factors made the Trump years particularly difficult for diversity and inclusion? Well, I think what you have to look at or, or understand is we have the dynamics of minority majority. And majority always wants to be that. And no matter what color people are, no one wants to share power. And so as minority groupers, African-Americans or Latinos began to try and increase and get equality, uh, the majority culture wants to keep things the same. And they're also driving that majority culture to fear of the unknown. You know, what happens if we, quote, allow people to be equal or have people of color in the boardroom? And it's no different in some ways the way men treat women. Well, if we have women executives, how can we work with them where they think the way we are? And so it's sort of a good old boy mentality to keep everything the same. Some of the factors in the Trump administration has made things difficult is that he has really excited or reignited, and he's not the first one uh, president to do this, but he has reignited the angry white male. And so it's been a, a revival of people talking about reverse discrimination. And if you look at the numbers, the white community really has nothing to fear about to some extent. But when you have that idea of making people angry and say, if you just work hard enough, you can get there. But if the majority of people you go to who are decision makers don't look like you, and you're assuming everybody's basically good, then you have problems. And so that's why things continue to exist. And also, I don't know if he's prejudiced or not, but he did hit some constituents or white supremacists, and he never spoke against that. And so not to speak against it and be silent is really for that. And so that's given them more voice and more courage to do things we have. So it's really created more of a divide in America than we've had in quite some time. You know, that's really an interesting point of what you said there, because I think this applies to corporate leaders as well. Sometimes, even if you're not directly promoting something as the way things are around here, when people in your organization are operating a certain way and you're silent about how they're operating, you are in essence co-signing on what they're doing. And that creates a climate in terms of the culture of the organization. You're in so many words saying in the United States, right from the top, that was a culture that was also being you know, created because many people who are, you know, for example, white supremacists were able to offer their viewpoints and it wasn't challenged or wasn't, um, you know, no one said that's not the way to think about things. 
Well, that's true. And, and it's just really sad that because they were his constituents, he didn't speak out against it. It just created, created more problems. And, and um, you know, what I found in research for this new book I'm writing is that after the last four years with the Trump administration, women of color executives have, have gone, has decreased. The percentage has gone lower. Also, the number of black males executives has decreased. So those are some things that he has created. And when you don't have that kind of leadership, we have less leaders of color, then people don't get to see that, hey, they're just as smart as we are, that promotes inequality. And it takes away the fear and creates more safety. And it opens the door for genuine diversity, not hitting a quota, but just on, on merit. But you have some people in place who are judging that merit fair, fairly. The problem is, it's not that we are not smart enough. We just don't have people in place to judge it fairly and becomes who you know, not what you know. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that in the past there have been other presidents. I'll go way, way back under the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, because there were, there were a lot of gains that were made in the reconstruction years. And there were, for example, Blacks in, in government at the highest levels even. And when Woodrow Wilson came in, all of those gains were erased. People did no longer had representation. And then the Jim Crow laws got enacted and spread to even Washington, D.C., and even some more northern kinds of points. And that was the beginning of really losing a lot of ground and a lot of territory when prior to that, people had more opportunities to be educated, to be in key positions, to be in key jobs, and to show that they were capable and competent. And I hear a part of what you're saying that underlying a lot of this is kind of fear, fear of the unknown right. and, and not wanting to change, just stay with the status quo and what you're comfortable with rather than to experiment and try something new where we can really all win together in essence. Well, you know, if what made America great, it was the learning from everybody who was different. And so when you take the opportunity to learn away from what's different, successful, then it creates problems. You know, I think in 2005, I'm not sure, there was a University of Michigan court decision that went to the Supreme Court because they lowered the admissions for people of color because they said they had lack of access, but didn't have to do anything with their intelligence. And even though the, the business world was terrible in hiring women and people of color, they all backed that decision because here's the deal, they wanted to part of the global dollar. And the world, which is two thirds people of color, not one third, like some people like to say, if you didn't have people of color representing you globally, you weren't getting these accounts. So there's a lot of things that people will need to keep in perspective. You know, let's go there for a second. Um, when you mentioned that two thirds of the world population are people of color, some corporations support diversity initiatives because of their interest in profiting from access to the global dollar. Is this enough motivation to make a difference in diversity and inclusion? And if not, how do you inspire corporations to care at a deeper level? Well, I'm really fine with that. You know, corporate America is about greed and avarice. You know, it's about making as much money when I can. So if they want part of dollars overseas, that's fine. But what people, I'm going to use this very old term, what the people of color overseas are making America and white American corporations do is come correct. You got to be diverse. And so I feel if you get people of color in there and, you know, let's be honest, they're going to have to be the best of the best to even get considered. Then once they're in there, then it's their job to make changes. 
and people would be noticed because they'd be seen. And then, so I think if they get in, things would change and get better. And, you know, and really smart African-Americans are actually going overseas and doing stuff. So, you know, we're not really limited the way people think we are, but I think if we work with these corporations, they're smart enough to hire us and they'll do it. But here's the deal. Diversity is profitable. You know, I did a whole research on um, what secular organizations are doing, but diversity is profitable because you immediately have a bigger market to sell or to approach to. You have a product that's more usable with more people, so you make more money. So not to be diverse is really not smart financially if you want to grow your company. You know, that's a very interesting point because we could begin to see, for example, in the United States, a talent and brain drain if we mm-hmm. don't start valuing the people that we have here because those people have opportunities elsewhere is what you're saying. So do you want to get the benefit as a U.S.-based businesses, or do you want a business in another country to get the benefit that you could have had first but chose not to have? <laughs> so well, it's something to think about. Well, it is. You know, I, one of the chapters in my book is what we need to learn from South Africa. When the Blacks in South Africa took over, when apartheid was destroyed, and it was great, and I'm all for that, when the Blacks took over, they did just what the Afrikaners had done. They put their buddies in, qualified or not. Well, the result of that, they were so hard with doing that, a lot of the young Afrikaners left South Africa, which they loved, and went to Canada, where they lost a lot of natural resources. So if America's not smart, African-Americans and Latinos eventually going to realize, hey, you know, I can be successful overseas. They're going to leave the United States and go overseas and make our competitors in other countries more successful than we are here. And some of that's already starting to happen. So uh, I think we need to wake up and be aware of that, that, that African-Americans, other people of color are natural resources and their diversity would make us really effective. So if you want to make America great, then you need to diversify. Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) You know, and and I also like the point that you made that you can't turn around and do the same thing that you didn't like having done to you because it didn't work. And if you just reverse it and do it to the person who did it to you, you haven't improved anything. You really haven't changed anything. You still have the same problem. It's just the color is just reversed. That's all. But nothing's improved. Nothing, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's an important point. So, Dr. Clarence, let me ask you this. What are your thoughts about racial reconciliation? What is racial unity, and how is that different from racial reconciliation? Oh, you're going to make me crazy. Uh, I, <laughs> I despise the word racial reconciliation. Uh, it was not coined by people of color. But if you understand English, and if you understand the prefix, re, the R-E, that means to go back to a previously good relationship. Well, that's not an accurate term because when in America have we had a previously good relationship? It lasted very briefly around Jamestown in the 1600s, but then the whites looted the black landowners and put them in slavery. And so when people say, when, especially white people say we want to have racial reconciliation, you're trying to go back to something. I won't go back to the way things were. Well, We've never had a relationship, so you can't reconcile a relationship that never existed. Now, you can have diversity, which I know a lot of people don't like that term, but you can have racial unity. But in that racial unity, there has to be a racial healing and racial understanding before you can get to the racial harmony. You can't walk together, someone's wounded or continues to be wounded, and you don't understand what their woundedness is all about. 
And so I think that's what people have to understand. But so often white people, especially males, as I do diversity consulting, even yesterday, people were saying, well, I don't want to be made to feel guilty because I'm white. Well, I hear that, but you need to let that go and just kind of find out what the truth is and what can I do to make things better? What changes do I need to make? And, and here's something let me share with you that people, you don't hear a lot of people talking about. Sociologists, when I first moved to Colorado Springs, they said in 2050, there'll be a new majority in America because people of color have more kids than whites. Well, the latest is 2040. But the reality of it is, it's probably going to be somewhere between 2035, 2038, that people of color are going to take over America. And so the whites may leave in droves like they typically do when move to the neighborhood, or they're going to catch the consequences of the people of color who now become in charge. And so all this stuff that's happening to people of color is going to flip-flop. And so less man is basically good. And so I tell whites when I do diversity consulting, when I do my maximizing difference training, I say, you know, if you have no interest in diversity, if you love your grandchildren, your children, you better make some changes because if the people of color who are going to take over eventually don't see some changes, it might not bode well for your family. And then everything changes because they love their kids and their grandkids. Well, that's an important point, thinking about the future. And it's like you have an opportunity to partner now to create a better future together rather than to continue the, the discord and the, the, the difficulty so that when it reverses, it'll be kind of like that South African picture that you painted earlier, which isn't going to be good. You know, that's not what the objective is. That's not what we're looking for. And I really like what you said about this reconciliation, because when I I know when President Trump used to talk about, you know, make America great again. And I'm thinking I would go back in history in my own life, my father's life, my grandparents life. Okay, when was it great for us? You know, it's like uh, the again part certainly didn't. If you want to say make America great, I could sign up for that. But make America great again. As a person of color, that was a very difficult concept for me to really get into. So the reconciliation thing, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And it's important that racial healing is necessary, telling the truth is necessary, and then co-creating that better future together is the objective, really. That's what we're really talking about. And another thing, Dr. Karen, when Asians and Latinos hear that term, and Native Americans hear that term racial reconciliation, they think they're excluded. And they say it's just a black and white conversation. So it's unintentionally divisive, but people may mean really well, they need to change the terminology. Okay, great. Thank you for bringing that up as well. So let me ask you this. What is anti-racism training? And where do you see this you know, so far as moving forward? Well, my understanding, I could be totally wrong here. You may need to correct me. The people who I've talked to and talk about anti-racism training, it's not just saying I'm not prejudiced, it's actually doing something proactive to improve race relations, wherever that may be. It may be uh, some of my neighbors in Colorado Springs, some have come across the street and talked to me, or some have voted for, I don't want to get into politics, but they voted for someone who they normally wouldn't vote for, but they thought those particular people would make things better from a diversity perspective. And so they're sacrificing understanding and and also now having conversation. And so I think those are the things that really help us. But you can't just say, I'm not prejudiced. That's not good enough. You can't just be silent and say, that's terrible what they're saying or doing. No, you you know, the time for all the talking, I think, is over. I think we have to do something. 
it's been amazing in America that we're taking down statues, we're changing names of stadiums. Some banks have put up more than a million dollars for reparations. I'm trying to get on that list, but uh, but they're doing some things to make a difference. They've gone beyond talking. Now, maybe they're going to extremes, but they're doing something. And so I think the days of doing nothing aren't going to be profitable for anybody. Now, here's where, you know, you know how you sort of got hives when I said reconciliation and I get hives when I hear, you know, the term about anti-racism because, I, you know, as a psychologist, I know that words matter. And so if I say I'm anti-racist, I'm kind of building back into my mindset the racism that I'm trying to get rid of. So I'd rather see us talk about what are we aspiring to and put that in front of us rather than the anti-racism thing, which keeps you kind of stuck back here. Now, so if we get rid of that and just say, all right, we probably need a different term. The concept that you're talking about, which is doing something that's meaningful, you know, both of us are for that. And you've been giving some great examples about corporations. I want to go a little bit deeper into that because many people, including corporations, they've made some symbolic moves to declare their support for the concept of Black Lives Matter. I'm not talking about the organization, but the concept. So what objectives are meaningful and related to sustainable change? And which are these kind of statements and objectives that are just what in the military we used to call window dressing? It's not really making a difference or moving the needle forward. Well, I think it's one thing to write and change your policies to say that we're racially diverse, we desire to be racially diverse, but desire to be racially diverse, they may have been away for years until there's actually policies or things done where people of color can actually get into decision-making positions and have a position of leadership and be at the table, not after policies are made, but while they're being made or help create them, then that's when you'll see change. And then that's when you see really great progress. And you'll also see the fear of people of color or women in position of leadership not be a big issue. Uh, years ago, early around 2000, 2005, I was surprised that Texas Instruments were really pushing hard for diversity by the CEO and also his goal was to have a woman as CEO of Texas Instruments back in 2000. So, and these are not uh, faith-based people. So when you think about that, and, and his reason was very simple. He said, if you just focus on white males, you're going to run out. He said, but there are plenty of women, there are plenty of people of color. So just from a logistical, mathematical deal, he said, this is what we need to do. And so um, Kathy Kraft, who, who used to head up uh, that organization, uh, she said, you got to get everybody talking together. But she said, even have groups that are diverse are really important because then everybody notices that and becomes really important and becomes, and it's in their thought processes, how, what are we doing through the organization? So I think you have to not just do the window dressing, you have to take some bold risks and uh, put people in position of leadership, which means the problem is so often the white community says, well, if you put someone in, you just do it because they're a color and we got to take someone out. But the white community has been doing that for years. It's somebody's nephew, cousin, uncle, brother, and they put them in because they had the right to do it. And no one says anything because that's the way it's done. So I don't think it's unfair. I'm not saying affirmative action, but there are plenty of African-Americans, Latinos uh, who are qualified to be in some of these positions of leadership. Yeah, so I hear you saying you've got to signal the change with effective behavior. Yes. People bring people to the table even to make the decisions to co-create the process going forward and having them in significant leadership roles and having some vision 
for the future of the company that includes people that maybe haven't been included in the past, because that's the only way you're going to have something different than what you've already got is if you bring the people to the table. And my, it's been my notion that when you bring those diverse groups together, I believe you get to what I call the third solution, which is actually a better option and alternative than what either group alone really would have come up with. Well, yeah, I mean, again, the research bears it out that diverse teams are better problem solvers because yes. you have different perspectives. Like a man and woman coming together are going to solve a problem better than either one by themselves because they think differently, bring different perspectives to the table. And that's can be translated with organizations or businesses with money. So I, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, even last week, you and I talked about how that even works in marriage, you know, just bringing together yeah. the diverse yeah. views of husband and wife, you're going to have a better situation, a more complementary type of marriage, just because of the differences that are brought together. So it works in a lot of different spheres, not just at the corporate table, and it certainly also works at the corporate table in the boardroom as well. So now, Dr. Clarence, you work with a lot of Christian ministries, and those ministries are not immune to diversity dilemmas, and they also have some glass ceilings in their organization. So what gets in the way of some Christian ministries from living out the biblical values of love and unity? Well, I think some of the problems is that we have our faith, but you just said it, we don't often live it out. And living our faith is really about taking risks. That's what it is. And so, uh, and then I think we have to realize that we struggle our own prejudice and deal with the things that are prejudice. It was amazing. We had a conversation yesterday at my diversity training and one guy's kept going on about one particular deal and until another white male told him, I said, I don't think you understand what Dr. Schuler is saying. He said it several times. He says, you need to be quiet. And so when we heard the follow-up today or debriefing, they said that guy exposed himself because he has all the answers and he's a prime example of a person not willing to change. But he loves Jesus, he can quote the Bible, but he's not living it out. And so until we see people as equal, we won't accept them as equal and we won't treat them as equal. You know, I heard several things there that are really important and that is it can be a real barrier if you think by yourself you have all the answers. And it's really important to realize that there are other people at the table and you want to see them as equals and as partners at someone you can learn from and you can grow together. And so often, if that's not there, even in a Christian based organization, there can be challenges and there can be difficulties. Well, and, and the problem in the Christian organizations, when they have that, it really reflects how they're worshiping God. Because one thing I did with this Christian organization, I took them through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, show how God really got diversity. And that's why my new training is called Maximizing Difference. And what we understand the difference, there's an interdependency that makes us better together than we ever could be apart. As we were talking, one of the participants in the training yesterday said that his organization has spent $50,000 on a headhunter for various positions. And he said, do not come back if you don't have seven to nine people of color and females for these, some of these positions. He says, we have plenty of white people. He said that I didn't, and he was white. He said, we have plenty of white people. We need to be more diverse. And he said, I'm not just talking about being a token. So I thought there's really, so we need leaders like that with not just the insight, but the courage and financial willingness to do what he just did. 
yeah, courage and having the bold vision and yeah. setting the, the standard. This is what we want. Bring that back right, <laughs> right. for these results, so to speak. That's yeah. a really, that's great. I, I thank yeah. you for sharing that story. Now, Dr. Clarence, I know you're writing a new book on yeah. diversity with New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Gary Chapman. I think it's called Think About It, Cause and Effect. How has the book writing process taken an emotional toll on you? And how will this book be different from your previous book? Well, this book I'm actually writing by myself. Dr. Chapman, oh, we, we have written a book together that's uh, not quite under contract. We haven't signed a contract, so I can't talk about that. But it's how to build relationships cross-culturally, but it's more one-on-one. -on -one. This book, Think About It, is connecting all the dots. When people talk about Black-on-Black -black crimes, you know, I, I kind of, that bothers me. And so I, I did research, like, for example, all the poverty areas in the globe, and there's some very strange, uh, there are a lot of characteristics. And so I just share this with you. I'm not sure a lot of people, but it's in my book, is that when you talk about Black on Black crimes, it's not that Black people care less about other Black people than anybody else. They're crimes of proximity. When you study the slums in, in uh, Ireland, it's white on white, but they're crimes of proximity. And so it's not justifying the crime. I just tell you, that's what it is. There's also low policing. There's all these things, you know, like when there were issues in Chicago a couple of years ago, the policing dropped down by 82%. So those are some of the things that we need to talk about. And to think about it, book, it just connects the dot. Like, for example, uh, with children and, and being put in special education. Well, white females, I think it's about 90% of teachers are, are white females. Or, or it's really pretty high. But they are putting kids of color in special ed at an alarming rate. In fact, today the research shows that they used to target boys, fourth grade black boys. Now they're targeting Latino boys and African-American boys in kindergarten. So the research shows that 80% of the kids in special ed are Latinos and African-Americans. And I think there are more males in the process. So that's a very big systemic thing that needs to be addressed and no one's talking about it. So those are things like in the book that I'm kind of bringing out to, to light. And it sounds like you're implying that these are not proper placements. These boys no. don't belong in special ed and they're going in earlier and that therefore it's setting the trajectory for their lives. Well, a lot of them drop out of school because they're actually pretty smart. And uh, the Harvard uh, Research Project has done work on this that this is where I got my research from. So Harvard is doing research. Their civil rights research project, which has been going on, going, is bringing out all this research. So that's that's where I've gotten that from. Yeah. And the emotional toll you have to take on me, it wears me out. I haven't written anything in about two months because it's just sometimes it's really tough. I mean, I, I'm trying to finish some other stuff up, but it's just it can become really difficult emotionally. And I have to kind of process that. But I need to finish it up so I can get it out hopefully later this year. Say more about that. Why is this tough for you? What's the emotional toll to write about this? Well, I think, you know, it's just when you see the injustice and when you feel like you can't do anything about the injustice, it wears on you. And then you also, you're not just writing about them. You're also seeing yourself in the midst of that. And then if you're not careful, sometimes it can be, it's not hopeless because hope comes out of hopelessness, but it's just hard emotionally because you mentioned Christian organization. I'm a Christian. I'm a faith. I'm a Christ follower. And so you, you just struggle. You just wrestle. And you say, God, how long is it going to happen? What's going to happen? Then you say, what role can I play? I'm tired. How can I make things better? And uh, so those are things that wear on, on me 
as an African-American and, you know, what can I do? But, but as I share with people these thoughts, they say, you got to write the book. I mean, I got white guys saying, you got to write the book. You got to get it out. We'll help you get it out. So I just got to get back to it and, and do it. It's a tough ministry. It's a labor of love. And I fully believe that when the book comes out, it will make a difference. And it's going to help to move the needle further than it's been so far. And you're writing from a perspective of a deeper understanding than many people have about these issues. So thank you for, for going through the emotional toll that you have to go through to get it written. That means you're really engaged in it. You're not just writing on the surface if it really is impacting you emotionally as well. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. So how have you raised your daughters to be successful in a world where diversity and inclusion are not yet at an optimal level? Well, after the George Floyd murder, uh, I was asked to do some radio interviews. And so I just finished doing one and my youngest daughter, as soon as I finished doing the interview, my youngest daughter called me and said, Dad, I've written a poem about this racial issue. And she did a video that actually went viral. And I was so proud of her. I was so sad because she talked about in Colorado Springs how a police officer stopped her late at night by 10 at night and kept her for like 45 minutes. She said, I don't know if you're going to rape me. I know what he's going to do. He finally let her go. And she didn't tell me because she said, I knew you would chase him down. And I didn't want him to shoot you. But I've also tried to raise my daughters with this idea that there's nothing they can't do. And I've also encouraged them for excellence. And, and I'm really proud of my daughters because they managed their money well. So that uh, I think they're all our debt. They bought their own cars and doing different things. They finished college. And, and so one went to law school for a while. And then I've also began to teach them that someday, if, if God didn't come back soon, you're going to be the majority in this country. So this is how you treat the new minority. So you have to treat them with respect and dignity as a Christian, the way you want them to treat you. Even though they may not be treating you this way, you treat them differently. You treat them the way God wants you to treat them. So that's really important, I think, for them. You know, I love the fact that you give them the vision that they can be all that they want to be and all that God calls them to be in spite of whatever the challenges are that are around us. And you're already preparing them to treat the new minority in a different way. And your daughter who did the viral video, she's following in your footsteps because she's giving voice, you know, to the issues the same way as dad's doing, giving voice to the issue. So Hey, congratulations on the thing that you and your wife are doing. Well, you know, two of my daughters have written some pieces. Uh, My one daughter, Christina, wrote something that was really insightful that it kind of blew me away about people and relationships and and going into shells. And then my youngest daughter, Andrea, wrote this this piece. I mean, she's going to be a writer and she's going to deal with the racist. She's going to attack it. So, So I'm really proud for her, but also concerned for her as well. Absolutely. So what else is important in making the workplace safe for women and people of color? Who's getting it right? Well, uh, every year, I think Fortune Magazine uh, puts out a list of companies, about 50 companies that do a good job in area diversity. And they actually grade them, A to, a to F for the grade. So, so you can pick that up and, and do that. I think the companies that do it well are the companies that have, like the Texas Instrument we talked about, they have leaders like that that are actually going in to improve racial relations to not do tokenism, but create positions, or not create positions, but put them in position of leadership. But they're listening to the women, they're listening to minorities, people of color, 
as they talk about how to make the company more effective and how diverse leadership can really be effective. So I think those are the companies that win and, and see things down the road. Xerox years ago went into South Dallas and they gave scholarships to kids. They told kids in the ninth grade, if you do well in your sophomore and junior year in high school, we would give you a two-year scholarship to a junior college for those kids who couldn't afford that. And they said, and if you do well in junior college, we would get you in a four-year college so you can finish your degree and you can come work for us. So way down the road, they're talking to ninth graders in a tough district, tough area to help them be successful. They're giving the young people choices and options. So those companies that are looking at people who aren't even working for them yet, those ones are going to be successful in the area of diversity. Yeah, that's really important. Being able to invest in your local community and to think for the long term, not just for today, it's grooming the future talent, if you will, and being willing to look at, uh, well, I often call it those diamonds in the rough, so to speak, they're out there and with some attention and with some resources, they can become great employees for these big corporations. Absolutely. And so the corporations do have a role to play in coming to the table and putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Well, you're exactly right. And not just, well, you're right, employees, but also they need to look at people of color and women as possible leaders of that country, of that, that company. They, they got to start looking at a different kind of legacy. Absolutely. So Dr. Clarence, how can people reach you? And again, tell us about your books, the existing one and the one that's coming in this area of racial unity. And so people will know where they can find you. Well, if they go to my website, it's just Clarence, not Clarence. It's just ClarenceShuler.com. And it's, there's no C in my last name and only one L. So it's ClarenceShuler.com. Uh, they can go there and get some videos, stuff like that. They can look at that. Also, my book, the one we referred to, is Winning the Race to Unity. And the real question is racial reconciliation really working. So we look at it from a historical perspective as well, but also how to make some changes. One chapter is changing from my theology to reality. That's the best way to reach me. And your new book that's coming out, the one that's taking the emotional toll, which, what's the name of that one right now? Well, the, the working title is Think About It. And that's what I want people to do. If they can think about it, my goal is that they'll discuss it and uh, it'll make some changes in their lives. I don't think they can look at the facts, just like the videos, and not make a change. And when is that due out? Hopefully November of this year. Hopefully November this year. Lord willing, and the creek don't oh. rise. Okay, soon. All right. Excellent. So as we're wrapping up today, what words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders on this subject of racial unity? Well, if I'm talking to business leaders who want their companies to be more profitable and even have a global impact, you need to diversify. You need to go look historically black colleges, different places. You need to do that if you want to be successful. It's important that you aren't afraid to have females and people of color in position of leadership. That's going to really make you effective. I think the other thing we really have to look at, people in leadership have to really begin to say, I'm okay with sharing the power. And then probably the last thing, we can't be afraid of the unknown. We can't have a fear of the unknown. And a lot of times we fear people of color and we fear women in leadership, and we have to get away from that. Okay. Well, great. So thank you so much, Dr. Clarence, for sharing those words of wisdom. And I want to just summarize a few things that you've said. You've talked about how for corporations to make a difference today and to get beyond what I'm going to call the window dressing 
and put their money where their mouth is, they're going to have to invest in bringing more diverse people to the table to even make the initial decisions to co-create the future together. They're going to have to put people in key leadership roles who can help with that decision-making and going forward. And I've also heard you say that a lot of times it's fear that's standing in the way, people being afraid of change, people being afraid of the unknown and what they don't know. And yet if we don't co-create together, It means that tomorrow is not going to be great for either one of us. And those who are being mistreated today may turn around and do the exact same thing to the new minority. So it really is beneficial to all concerned to get started today and figure out how to partner in a way that's more beneficial for all. And there's a lot more that Dr. Clarence said. So definitely listen to the whole podcast again so you don't miss any of those pearls of wisdom. And as we close today, I want to read some verses from Revelations, the sixth chapter, and starting with verse nine. And and what I want you to think about is the fact that we're going to an eternal future where there's not going to be a white heaven There's not going to be a black heaven. There's not going to be a Latino heaven, an Asian heaven, a Native American heaven or whatever. God is bringing us all together. And so we get a chance to do some dress rehearsal down here on earth. And this is just one of a a number of different series of verses that talks about the diversity that's going to be in the future. So in Revelation, the sixth chapter, starting with verse nine, it says, After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around and the elders of the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Did you know that teams do the bulk of the work in successful organizations? And for this reason, it's very important to build and develop your teams. And first, you might want to know where you are in the process. So I invite you to take the complimentary team assessment to identify your current strengths and also your learning opportunities in launching and developing high-performance teams that get dynamic organizational results. So go to my website, www.transleadership.com, and you'll see on the homepage, there's a brown bar that says, take the high performance team assessment. You'll find it just under the running photographs. Click there and get your results. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. 
and I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening, and remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.